Modern technology now means that we have a far greater understanding of human biology than we ever have done in the past. So this means that we can now be reasonably thinking about how to significantly extend our lifespan, but also perhaps more importantly, how to significantly extend our health span. That means living a healthy lifestyle all the way up until the end of our lives. But what exactly should we be doing to try to make this a reality? Should we be making changes to our lifestyle? What kinds of things should we be eating? And what kind of habits should we be avoiding? Well, all of these questions are the subject of this week's conversation with Andrew Panella. Andrew is the founder of the Longevity Lifestyle Twitter page. Uh, he's an author, he's written a couple of books, and he's got a program which you can all find out about if you uh, check him out online. And I wanted to speak to him about longevity in general, but also this idea of health span and what kinds of things that we can all be doing to make sure that we live long, healthy lives. So without further delay, here is Andrew Pinella. Hello, friends. I am here with Andrew Pinella. Andrew, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I am doing extremely well. Thank you, Tom. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing good. Looking forward to a uh, to a exciting conversation all about health and, uh, and longevity. Yeah. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Good to have you on. Um, so look, lots I want to talk to you about um, the specifics of, of different things that we can we can do with our lives to improve our longevity. But first of all, I would love to hear a bit more about your journey, where you're at currently and, and how you kind of came to be in this this world of, of health and longevity that you find yourself in. Yeah, no, happy to share. I would say, I mean, as I grew up, I was always an extremely avid sports player. I was pretty into, you know, health and wellness while I was growing up. But then um, as I got to college and even after college, I had a series of injuries on my knees, on my hips, and it sent me on a journey just to learn as much as I possibly could about the human body uh, and why this was happening to me. And so I ended up just reading hundreds of different books and listening to hundreds of podcasts and I, I really started to develop a huge passion for it. And so as I was you know, filling these books with sticky notes and highlights, and uh, I just started to create content and post it on Twitter. And I found that a lot of it was stuff that was helpful to people. I had a lot of people reaching out to me for questions. And um, I've spent the last years, 10 years professionally in the software sales space. And I worked in education technology for about five years right now. I'm still working for a community of social impact leaders, but on the side, I've just been sharing this information on Twitter. I've had a lot of people that have come to me that I've been able to coach. I've built some amazing friendships and relationships on there, and I'm looking forward to actually doing this full-time at the start of next year. So that's a little bit more about me. Awesome. Um, so your, your Twitter name is uh, Longevity Lifestyle, right? So what... How do you think about the possibility of significantly extending the human lifespan? Like, is it uh, a super achievable thing we can do now? Is it something that we should be thinking about in the future? Like, how are you coming at this uh, topic? Yeah, I, I chose the name because I really believe in order to live a long and healthy life, it has to be uh, your lifestyle choices. That's really what kind of impacts the outcomes in your life. And I've heard Peter, Peter Atia talk about it a couple times uh, as far as like not liking the word longevity, because for some people that just means living as long as humanly possible. Um, and I, I truly believe that longevity is living healthy for as long as possible. So you're not dealing with chronic disease, you're not you know, bedridden, you lose your mobility or lose your mental facilities. And so as far as human lifespan, there's a lot of folks out there that are doing some really interesting research as far as trying to reverse or slow aging. I don't know how much of it is really moving the needle. Um, I mean, unless we're able to prevent the decline in our stem cell reserves, I, I'm not totally sure that it's going to be feasible. But uh, there are definitely a lot of folks like David Sinclair and his team at, at Harvard. They've had some really interesting stuff they're doing uh, and animal models to extend lifespan. 
There's folks experimenting with different molecular compounds. Um, so I think it's possible that we extend human lifespan, but I don't think it's going to be the way some people frame it up as like, it's going to be normal to live to, you know, 150 plus. I don't think, I don't think we'll fully get there, but I do think we're going to be able to extend health span where people are I mean, we're already seeing it. People living into their 70s, 80s, and 90s in absolutely phenomenal health. Um, mm. I just don't know if it's beyond 150. You're basically like living in a lab somewhere. It's just not realistic. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Um, because I like, I don't know if you follow like Brian Johnson. Um, there's a guy that I spoke to on here previously, Thomas Chapin, who is also one of the kind of, um, I would say, like techno optimists in the longevity space who who really do think that we can dramatically extend human lifespan with various different technologies um but when i spoke to thomas he was very keen to make the same point that you have which is that it's not about just living forever as like a vegetable right like the health span is actually the most important bit you know like a an 80 year healthy lifespan is preferable to a hundred year health span that's, you know, plagued by chronic disease and bad mobility and, and all of that sort of stuff. So like, I, I definitely agree with you um, on that point. Um, I think it's, there's, I mean, if we were to significantly extend the human lifespan, the question becomes what is like, what does that look like? If we mm. have, uh, you know, if we've extended lifespan because we're able to retain somebody's consciousness past the point of them losing their physical body and, you know, it's like something out of a sci-fi novel where there's like a brain floating in a tank and they can still communicate. Maybe, but that's not really, <laughs> to me, that's not really like, I like to go outside. I like to walk, run, jump, play, you know, play sports and games. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if that's like a, a, a good extension of human lifespan. Uh, so I guess it just depends on who you ask and really what that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, I think I think most serious people in the field really what they're talking about is health right it's it's if you want to maximize your normal human lifespan then it's about living in a healthy way for as long as you can right and and minimizing your chances of, of disease because i think you know there's a fairly I, I had a um a guy on called james richards who's uh a cancer survivor he had male breast cancer and he was talking about these treatments you know nanobots and stuff like that you know, I'm pretty convinced that there will be a cure for cancer within the next, you know, 15, 20 years, maybe, um, you know, the technology is moving so fast, but the main thing is the health, right? It's the, the things that we can do ourselves, which is, uh, what I want to, what I want to talk to you about, I guess. So on that, then let's talk through the basics of what you're telling people, what you're communicating, what are the basics in terms of what we should be eating and what the kind of, you know, should we all be like lifting insane weights in the gym and, you know, deadlifting like, you know, twice our body weight or are there more simple steps that we should be thinking about? Yeah, when it comes to what we should be eating, I really try to make it as simple as possible for people. And I think what a lot of people, a good starting point for folks is when you think about like the macronutrients, the main three that... Um, you know, folks talk about fats, protein, carbohydrates, each of them plays a different role in the body. So you can think of protein like the building blocks for your cells, your amino acids, um, you're breaking them down, you're taking, you're, you're rebuilding, uh, the tissues in your body. Fats are building blocks and a fuel source. So all of our cell membranes are made of fat. So you obviously need healthy fats in your diet, but your body also can use fat as a fuel source, whereas carbohydrates are really purely a fuel source. So you think about the three, you got the building blocks, the fuel and building block, and then the purely fuel. Um, I think that's a helpful framework for people to think about what they're consuming in their diet, what they need to prioritize. And then you really have two goals with your diet. The first is you want to maintain metabolic flexibility. And what that means is you've evolved to either be running on carbohydrates or fats as a fuel source, and your body should be able to flexibly switch between both of them very easily. Okay. And I think what a lot of people struggle with is if we consume X in excess, whether it's calories or carbohydrates, we forget how to run on fats. And so 
we end up stuck in this storage mode where people just continually store fuel for the long term, which is restored as fat on the body. And so metabolic flexibility is absolutely critical because you have to be able to switch between running on carbohydrates and running on fats. Uh, You know, when you can run on fats, that's how you burn the excess fat off your body and prevent the visceral fat buildup around the belly. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, So the, the, like most people or people that, that struggle with, with their weight, then they've got stuck in a cycle of just going around and around the, the carbohydrate cycle. Yeah. So eating too much, storing it and their body is, is unable to switch into fat burning mode. So what, why is that? Why, why have we become like that? It's excess fuel. So when people are constantly like you have a demand on your fuel reserves every single day, and it depends on how much you're moving, what your activity levels. Are you, you know, playing sports every day? Are you in the gym? Are you going for runs? If you are, you're obviously going to put a higher demand on your body to provide fuel. But most people are living a very sedentary lifestyle and still eating in excess of the fuel that they need. So the body, because we've been designed this way to try and survive, it takes that excess fuel and stores it usually around the belly and other areas of the body as fat. So Mm. um, that's really the main problem is a lot of people are living in this state of excess consumption without without a high demand for burning that energy. So I think we should probably at this point, like define our terms slightly. So when we're talking about storing carbohydrate as fat, we're also talking about eating fat. And so does that fat that you eat also get stored as fat? And like, how does that interplay kind of work? Yeah, it can. So when you are eating both carbohydrates and fat, your body is basically taking the carbohydrates and it's using some of them immediately. It's then storing some of them as like short-term storage. You can store about 24 to 36 hours worth of carbohydrates and that gets stored in your liver and your muscle tissue. And then fat in your diet as well can be used as fuel. But again, if you have a ton of carbohydrates, they're more readily available for your body to use as fuel. And so the fat in your diet will just end up contributing to that excess uh caloric intake which again just keeps you in the the storage mode right okay and so for for example people that do you know practice like the ketogenic diet they don't hmm. eat really any carbohydrates at all i think most people try to keep it below like 50 grams of carbohydrates a day so they're getting most of their fuel from the fat in their diet so hmm. uh it's not sort of putting them into that excess mode, they're actually training their body to run on fat. And so do you, do you recommend things like the, the keto diet then? I mean, cause they're, they're, it, like, it feels like there are, you know, I kind of pay attention to a lot of the podcasts and stuff that, that you mentioned that, that you get into. It seems like there's a lot of different, um, competing theories right like some people say you should be doing keto some people you say you should be carnivorous some people say actually no you should be plant-based mainly for your for your gut and and all of this stuff like where do you kind of sit on that spectrum like what do you how do you advise people this is going to sound super cliche but i really promote things in moderation so i don't think that people need to be practicing a keto diet for the long term, I do think that putting your body through periods of ketosis, which means fat burning, is extremely beneficial. So ketosis is something the body naturally goes into when it runs out of carbohydrates for fuel, it then switches Mm. to fat if it's metabolically flexible. And so people should naturally be fluctuating between running on carbohydrates and running on fats but being on the ketosis sort of keto diet means you're only running on fats for the long term. And I just know that that can result in hormonal imbalances, uh, sometimes like mineral deficiencies. I mean, you do want some carbohydrates in your diet and you want to go through periods of fluctuation because uh, your body has, has evolved for that. You know, if we came mm. across a patch of fruit, we would eat as much as we possibly could, store those carbohydrates, and then we'd go on with our hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Uh, and then when we ran out of carbohydrates, 
our body would switch to fat burning and maybe we, you know, successfully hunted and had an animal and would get, you know, the fat and protein from that. So long-term ketosis, I don't typically recommend for people. It can be helpful when somebody's trying to lose weight because they have so much excess fat stored that they have enough to be in long-term ketosis. But especially for somebody that is at or near their desired weight, I don't think the the sort of keto diet as a long-term solution is a good way to go. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, I guess that this idea of metabolic flexibility ties in with that idea of, you know, like you were describing the kind of caveman, uh, you know, being flexible by necessity in, in prehistory, almost trying to replicate that in the modern world. Yeah, that's how I think about most elements of our health is what would our ancestors have been doing here? Or why did we evolve this mechanism in our body based on the life that we were living previously? And mm. I think there's a lot we can learn from the, the thousands and even millions of years of evolution of humans. And so I, I frequently go back to what would our hunter-gatherer ancestors be doing or why did we evolve this mechanism how is this helping them survive? And then how can we apply that to the modern lifestyle? So with with all of these different diets, then paleo, uh, keto, plant-based, I guess what you're saying is none of them are necessarily right or necessarily wrong, um, but you should moderate. So if you're going to do keto, do it for a while, get your body used to kind of working in that mode and then come back out of it, maybe have some carbs and go to a maybe a more plant-based move around them and keep your body guessing almost is that like your your uh, good summation of your philosophy yeah and everybody is different right some people have a more hyperactive immune system they may respond more aggressively to plants in their diet it may actually cause inflammation for them some people respond really well to eating more carnivore based diet and there are long-lived communities all around the world that have completely separate diets, like some that are extremely high in starchy, carbohydrate-rich vegetables, some that are almost purely meat-based, others that are like a mix of both or extremely high in fat. So I think part of it does depend on your background. You have to sort of figure out what works best for you. I really don't think there's one size fits all, but I think even within what works for you, there should be some sort of natural fluctuation of eating seasonally and having periods where you may be consuming a higher fat uh, content in your diet or a higher, higher carbohydrate content. Uh, I think that all plays a role, but you really got to find what works for you. Mm. Do you, as many people do, do you think bread is evil? I don't think it's evil. I typically <laughs> steer people away from bread. I mean, I think okay, sourdough yeah. bread is probably the best option because okay. the fermentation process actually allows the bacteria to digest some of the glucose in advance. So you're not getting as okay. high of a uh, glycemic load. It's not going to spike your insulin quite as much. And you're also right. not going to have as much gluten protein to have to digest, which for most people is inflammatory. Really? So, so m most people are, are gluten intolerant because it's almost become a joke now. Everybody says they're gluten intolerant, but yeah. like, so that is the case then. Yeah. I mean, I know a couple people that have celiac, which is like extremely yeah. high gluten intolerance. So like they'll have a beer or two and they'll throw up because it's that, yeah. <laughs> but everybody does respond to gluten in a, um, in an inflammatory way. Okay. Wow. So is him, is saying, him... like, you know, listen, you got to be able to live your life. If you want to be able to yeah, have, yeah. you know, your pizza or your bagels, yeah. um, I think that's totally fine. Again, moderation. I, I wouldn't like for me personally, I wouldn't be doing that more than maybe once a week as like a treat, but, um, mm. yeah, you gotta be able to live your life. Yeah. Yeah. So I hear a lot about inflammation these days. It seems like that's another kind of buzzword, um, that people are increasingly concerned about more recently is that something that you're talking to people about a lot is it a concern that we should all have thinking about reducing inflammation in our body through diet absolutely i think inflammation is the root cause of most chronic diseases if not all of them wow and part of part of the goal in being metabolically flexible is to keep inflammation down so 
when your body is stuck in fat storage mode, you can think of it as like you have all these workers, your lipoproteins, you talk about like LDL, HDL, you have all these workers in your bloodstream that are trying to shuttle fuel to your muscle tissues. And if there's too much fuel, they're like carrying these bags of fuel that are spilling out. So then you have inflammation taking place because your immune system's like, what is this? I don't, this isn't supposed to be in the body. And so right. that's where retaining metabolic flexibility is really important because you end up basically like having spillover of, uh, different sort of toxins and other molecules in your body that cause inflammation. And then once you have inflammation, your immune system starts to attack it. That's where you get the buildup of um, like arterial calcium that leads to heart disease and, and blockages. Right. So yeah, inflammation is definitely something at the end of the day, most of us, when we're trying to live a healthier lifestyle, what we're really trying to do is reduce inflammation in our body. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and so information is, and I'll just, I, I, I'll just be clear here that this is, uh, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not doctors. So I, you know, like this is, we're, we're talking diet and nutrition, but, um, so just so I'm clear, information is essentially the immune system, um, responding to energy sources that are being, uh, located in places around the body where they, they shouldn't be. And so it's, it's responding to that. Inflammation is the body's immune response to really any foreign, anything foreign in the body that it perceives as a threat. Yeah. So normally that's a good thing because the body is going to attack pathogens or like harmful bacteria and, and viruses that are in the body. Um, but when we have spillover from toxins or like we're eating in excess, we have spillover in our body, the body, the immune system just starts to treat everything like a foreign molecule. And then you have chronic inflammation. So your immune system's on high alert. And if you have your immune system acting around the clock on excess, you know, glucose or, or molecules in your bloodstream, it's going to act and actually reduce the effectiveness of your immune system. Cause it's not going to be as sensitive to finding mm. the actual harmful bacteria and pathogens. Mm. Um, okay. And I've seen, I, I was, I was checking out your, your Twitter before this conversation to make sure that I was doing my homework. I've seen you posting about fermented foods recently. Um, so I personally find fermented food incredibly distasteful. Uh, I just, I don't like, I don't like it. Um, so can you convince me why I'd need to put up and shut up and, 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 and eat it? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked because, uh, as I said earlier, you really have two goals with your diet. Number one is to retain metabolic flexibility. Number two is to protect and feed your gut microbiome. So every single one of us is really a meta organism. We have a hundred trillion different micro, uh, organisms in our body. That's more than the amount of cells we have in our body and they wow. play a role in everything our metabolism, our immune system, they're a huge factor. And we're really at the tip of the iceberg for understanding how they impact our health. What we do know is that they do play a huge role. And especially, I mean, they've done tests in long-lived communities and looked at their bacteria composition and found that in some of the longest-lived communities, there's similarities. Even when they're all over the world, there's specific wow. strains of bacteria that live in our bodies that are extremely beneficial. So where fermented foods come into play is they actually contain a lot of these bacteria. So right. up until about 150 years ago, we didn't have refrigerators. The only way that we were able to store foods for the long term was to allow them to ferment. And so we used to consume those foods regularly and that would provide our body with these you know, bacteria that would then populate our, our gut microbiome and help build a robust immune system. Uh, and prevent inflammation, all the good stuff we just talked about. So you said you don't like fermented food. Do you consume any kind of dairy? Uh, yes, yes, actually I do. So I'm thinking like the sort of vinegary pots of, uh, you know, vegetables. Uh, but yeah, no, dairy, yes, yeah. Um, what about beer? Beer's fermented. Does that count? I mean, obviously there's the alcohol that you, you also is, is very much not good for you, but... Does it count on the fermentation scale? 
Not really. No, beer doesn't really contain. Beer doesn't really contain a, a you know significant number of helpful bacteria compared okay. to any kind of like raw dairy, like cheese, yogurt, yeah. um, even raw milk. I mean, unfortunately, when you pasteurize dairy, you kill off a lot of the bacteria. I, I know we right. do that to. Pre- you know, protect us against harmful bacteria, but we, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater there. We're killing the good bacteria as well, which is why a lot of folks are now talking about the benefits of raw dairy, like raw cheeses and raw milk, which um, I actually, if you can get it from a a good source with healthy animals that are living on, you know, a pasture and eating grass, not in a central confined feeding operation, I think raw dairy can be a great source of these uh, beneficial microbacteria that populate your gut. Okay. Okay. And so what else? So are you fermenting vegetables in pots? I am. Yeah. I'm a big fan of fermented vegetables. I love okay. kimchi and sauerkraut. I probably have it every day and okay. it's pretty easy to make. So if you have it, access to vegetables, you get some Mason jars, you can do it with just a normal lid to a glass Mason jar, or you can get these easy fermenter lids. I think you can get them online for it's like $20 for a pack of four of them. And you basically, you, you rinse the vegetables, you put salt and maybe some spices on them. And then you fill the Mason jar with water. You put a little bit of salt in there and you put the vegetables in there and you leave them for anywhere from 10 to 30 days. So that's that's how our ancestors used to preserve food. They would put, you know, fermentable vegetables or, or fruits in jars uh, or pots, and then they would leave them and basically cover them. And then the, the about, bacteria would also, w- would actually preserve the food for them. Yeah. Uh, what about like, um, like jam? Is that, cause that's a preserve, like it, but it, it does that, is that fermented? I don't know. Do you, do you have jam in the U S no? Yeah, we have jam. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, okay, uh, yeah. But no, that's the sort of, uh, too much sugar store inserted preservatives are, are not the same as the actual live microbes yeah. that are in fermented foods. And a lot of fermented foods right on the label, it'll say live cultures. That'll just let right. you know that there's actual live bacteria in that food. That's yeah, what you yeah. want to look for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My wife has a, a cup of live bacteria that she drinks every morning. Um, but I, I just can't face it. <laughs> I feel like maybe I should after this conversation. It, what's interesting is the bacteria in your gut actually influence significantly your cravings. So you produce, I think it's about 90% of the serotonin in your body comes from your gut. So mm-hmm. serotonin, obviously the um, hormone that, that makes you feel sort of content satisfied. So your gut filled with these bacteria is actually dictating your mood and your thoughts. And so if you eat some bacteria from, let's say fermented vegetables like kimchi, and you do that every day, after like a week or two, you're going to start to crave kimchi because you've populated your body with the bacteria from that. And they're going to send signals to your brain to say, Oh, we, like we want more. Keep feeding us. More. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like we want our other friends to to join us. <laughs> the other part of it too. So the bacteria themselves. It's what pe- people call prebiot or probiotics. Probiotics. So like, yeah, yeah. Will, like take the capsules of bacteria, um, and I think that can be helpful, but it's not really long lasting. The mm. other element to like feeding your bacteria is with prebiotics. So okay. things like the fiber in fruits and vegetables, even the fibrous tissue in animals will provide uh, long chain fatty acids that are actual fuel for these bacteria in your body. So you not only need to eat the bacteria, you need to eat the fuel source for the bacteria, which is why, again, if you're eating kimchi, you're actually going to start to crave uh, or like people that will eat, you know, salads all the time, they'll, they'll actually start to crave salads because the the Mm. bacteria in their gut are saying hey we love this fiber that you're giving us from you know the kale or whatnot we want more of it yeah yeah interesting and so do you do you eat a lot of vegetables that because some people that there seems like a lot of like 
two very conflicting views on on a very plant-heavy diet, right? Some people have gone full carnivore now, and but I'd always assumed, and I still think, you know, my gut tells me, no pun intended, my gut tells me that eat, eating lots of vegetables has got to be good for you, right? Yeah, I find it uh, a little disheartening that we have these diet wars when there's just, yeah. there's one common enemy, and it's processed foods. I think if you're eating a diet that's based on real foods, stuff that's minimally processed, I would say the most processed you want is like the dairy. But fruits, vegetables, meat, I would say it's all fair game. Like I said, some people respond to mm. certain foods worse or better than others. For me personally, I am all about the moderation. As I said, I have periods yeah. where I'm eating a lot of meat. Usually that's like winter months. Like I'll make some like stews and soups. It'll be sort of meat heavy. But then summer months, I'll have a lot more fruit. Um, my wife and I have a garden. And this year it was like the Swiss chard and the kale were off the charts. So it was like I was eating tons <laughs> of salads. So it just, I mean, it just depends. And I listen to my body. If I'm feeling like a little bit more sluggish on certain days, I'll kind of think back like, well, what did I eat the last like week or two? Like how was I eating? I'll make little tweaks. So I'm very much a proponent of seasonal eating, rotating. I have times of the year where I do higher vegetable amounts, higher fruit amounts, times of the year where I do more meat. But the consistent theme for me, I, there's really like two metrics. It's the fermented foods as much as possible. I try to eat them every day. And then as far as macronutrients, I'm really focused on protein, trying to make sure I'm getting enough of that because that's the most satiating. So right. to make sure I feel full and I don't overeat, uh, also to maintain lean muscle mass, which is another really important key to longevity and maintaining your mobility. Protein is absolutely key. And are you able to do that when you're in a more plant-based phase? Yeah. So one of the sort of plants or legumes that I eat a lot of, uh, we have a pressure cooker and it is incredibly cheap to get high quality legumes, uh, like any kinds of beans, garbanzo beans, black beans, pinto beans, uh, you can get high amounts of them for, for very cheap and they store forever because they're, uh, like you can dry storage. So I'll just cook up big batches of those. And sometimes I'll have like a bowl of chickpeas. I'll have some like parsley in there. I'll add some yogurt. So I don't typically, I don't really have any times of the year where I'm a hundred percent plant-based because it is really mm. hard to get the amount of protein that uh, I'm targeting, which is about a gram per pound of body weight. Mm. I'm not sure that, what that would be in kilograms. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. We don't work in pounds. I'll, 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 yeah, people can figure it out. They've got Google. They've got ChatGPT. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it can be challenging. I, I think like having an option of protein shakes or bone broth is always good. Um, mm. but so protein, so I was going to come on then to ask you about this, about um, shakes. Um, so protein shakes, first of all, I've, uh, it seems like most people use protein shakes, but obviously it's quite processed. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's processed protein. So what it, it sounds like you use them. Um, are they uh, unalloyed good? Is there anything to be careful of? A lot of proteins, uh, whey proteins are filled with junk ingredients. So right. I have found it to be somewhat challenging to find a high quality uh, whey protein. It's also, your body doesn't absorb a, a ton of it. I think we absorb like 50% of whey protein. It may even be less. Right. Um, so one of the sources of protein that's uh, primary for me is bone broth. I'm a huge fan of bone broth. Okay. It's got all the essential amino acids. You can get it in the hydrolyzed form, which is like the um, little granules, and you just pour it into a hot cup of water, add some salt and garlic. You can even spice it up with like a little bit of olive oil and rosemary, and you absorb Sounds more. Sounds great. <laughs> oh, it's so good, especially during the winter months when it's colder. It's amazing. I just had a cup mm. before I hopped on. I love it. I drink it every day. Pretty nice. Much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as far as protein, I do think it could be helpful, especially for folks that are uh, trying to lose weight and want low calories. Bone broth or whey protein is a great way for them to help feel full without 
consuming in excess. And, mm. and even as you get older too, I think for folks that are trying to protect and preserve their muscle mass, whey protein can be a great resource as long as you find a, um, find one that doesn't is not filled with a whole lot of junk. Okay. Um, and what about other shakes? So do you have um, Huel in the US? H-U-E-L. No, I, I looked it up when you uh, shared it with me. I, we don't, oh, I don't you? know if okay. we have that here in the US. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I won't ask you about that then. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, so I, I, I drink it uh, and it's got like all of your daily vitamins and minerals and they call it engineered nutrition. But, you know, I'm no expert. So I was going to ask you about it. But um, so what about like AG1, that kind of stuff? Um, like, are you, are you a fan of that or do you prefer just going as natural as you can. Yeah, I think those supplements, those um, sort of, uh, what would you call them? Like nutritional, uh, almost like multivitamins can be really mm. helpful to make sure that people are hitting the nutrients that they need in their diet, especially if they don't have access to a lot of fresh foods um, and they struggle to eat a diet of real foods. I think those can be helpful. I don't think everybody needs them. I think if you're eating a diet that's pretty well-rounded, you don't necessarily need them. A AG1 is extremely expensive. I think it's like $100 mm. a month. Uh, there's a couple knockoff brands. Like I take uh, a green powder from Enzo Superfoods. It's like less than half the price of AG1. It's basically the same and it's all organic. So I do occasionally take those. The only other thing I would flag for people when taking those supplements that are sort of like the, um, uh, you know, green mixtures is there are a lot of the inflammatory plant compounds in them. So you have like oxalates, which are uh, one that, um, but Paul Saladino, the guy carnivore MD, he talks a lot about those. And for some people they can be really irritating to their gut, to their joints. Uh, again, it depends on your immune system. I don't tend to respond super poorly to them. But if I'm eating a ton of plants or taking, uh, those supplements in excess, I, I, I think I feel it a little bit. So I would just be aware for people if they are taking those supplements to be aware of the dose. And if they're feeling like joint pain or soreness, like maybe rotate on and off and see if that's the reason. Okay. Okay. So look, we've talked a lot about diet, um, and, and, and supplementation. Um, what about movement? So we, we're both, well, I'm sitting, sitting in a, in a chair that I spend most of my day in, uh, you know, I like modern life, I don't think is, is, is kind to the human body. Um, what are the big risks of the way we live our lives? Um, and how should we mitigate them? I, I mean, another cliche phrase, movement is truly medicine. So we live, as you said, we're in a society where people are sitting for huge portions of the day. And I think there are some really easy ways to mitigate that. Like I use a standing desk. I'm standing right now. I'm frequently like moving my legs when I'm talking to people. Sometimes people are like, mm -hmm. yo, why are you moving? It's distracting. But I really think there are some simple ways for people to incorporate more movement. If you are somebody that even works in an office space, I used to, when I would go into the office, I'd bring a foam roller. I would do every hour to 90 minutes, I would go, go outside and do like a couple laps around the building just to get moving. So I do think that's something that should be really low hanging fruit for people. Even walking mm. is just, walking is a fantastic form of exercise that more people should be doing, especially people that end up sitting for huge portions of the day. If you're on your mm. feet for your job, that's obviously another thing. But for most people, it's like they wake up, you know, they get in a car or ride a metro to work. They sit in an office all day. They come home. They sit on the couch. There's like no movement. And maybe they'll go to the gym or they'll go for like a quick run. But even if you're doing like a two-mile run but that you're sitting for the rest of the day, it's really – it's not enough. Um, and unfortunately, right. when you sit for long periods of the day too, you end up shortening your muscles and your hips. You get tight. And then when you do mm. exercise, if it's like short bursts of intense exercise or you're going for a run, you're actually putting yourself – at a higher risk of injury because you're not actually re retaining mobility and moving throughout the day. So I always, I'm a huge proponent of like micro movements, like just get up, do some jumping jacks, some air squats, some push-ups, just walk around the block a couple times, 
Uh, I, w- I recommend people every 45 minutes to an hour, try and move for like five to 10 minutes at least. Mm. Get a dog maybe. That forces me to go and walk every morning and evening. So Dogs are a great resource. Yeah. 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 It's, um, and, it, and it means you get, get out early as well. I, I, it's, it does, since getting a dog, I walk an awful lot more than I used to because you've got no choice, right? It's cruel if you don't. You can't just say, oh, no, I can't be bothered because, like, well, the dog needs to walk, you know, yeah. otherwise he's going to do a shit on the carpet. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's got to be done. I'm um, sitting right now and she's looking out the window next to me and keeps on coming over to me. She's like, when are we going to go out outside? So it's the same exact thing. It's like forces you yeah, to yeah. get outside. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm ready for a dog full time, but dog sitting is uh, definitely a good way to get outside. Oh, you got to get one. Yeah, they are. They're, they're, they can be annoying, but um, it is it is great. I, I was very skeptical. My wife made made me get one and um, I wouldn't change it now. Very yeah, dogs, uh, are, dogs are super great. I'm, yeah yeah um so what about feet right that, that i i'm i i've read on your page amongst others that uh shoes are messing up our feet somehow so what's the what's the what's the deal there should we should we be walking around barefoot more often i'm a huge proponent of barefoot um for yeah. a multitude of reasons i mean your feet okay. are really the foundation for your entire body mechanically all the way up through your neck and your skull. And unfortunately, modern footwear, while it provides a lot of cushion and support in doing so, it allows our lower body, our feet in particular to become really weak. So when you have a ton of cushion and support, your, your feet, your ankles, your knees, all of it's going to get a little bit weaker because it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to, uh, or it's not fully sort of engaged the way that it would be if you were barefoot. And then it ends up kind of messing up your posture and, and it can mess up your walking gait as well. I mean, we obviously evolved to be walking um, the majority of the time barefoot. So I always tell people being barefoot is extremely helpful for your posture, um, even like your just general flexibility and the way uh, the way that you move in any format is is helped by having strong feet, strong ankles. The other thing too is you have more nerve endings per square inch on the bottom of your feet than anywhere else on your body. So really, yeah, your feet take even your hands one of of sensory perception of the world around you, and so. Wow. I actually love, like I'm barefoot right now. I always, uh, when I'm working at my desk, I'm always barefoot. I love going outside barefoot and it helps stimulate the mind. I mean, with all those nerve endings, your body is picking up on the world around you through your feet. You know, obviously you have your Mm -hmm. other senses, but your sense of touch, your feet are probably the strongest, uh, or have the most significant sense of touch in your whole body. Have you seen these barefoot shoes? that uh that you can get now where they've just got much wider at the toes yeah i'm a big fan i have a couple pairs yeah. of barefoot shoes okay really yeah. all i wear uh really wear okay because crocs are pretty wide uh as well so and do you wear them to the gym do you wear them like running i work out barefoot yeah so i, I have barefoot wow. shoes that i wear go to the gym i don't have a gym membership anymore i just work out at home Okay. And so I work out barefoot every time I do my, do my workouts. Wow. Okay. And you've noticed the benefit going from uh, sneakers to uh, to barefoot. You feel it. Definitely. I mean, it was forced yeah. upon me. I had uh, I I tore my meniscus in my right knee four different times. Oh. I had surgery on both my hips, and one of my issues was I was constantly wearing shoes, and they were just putting my whole lower body and upper body out of alignment. So my hips were tilted, like, and and a lot of modern footwear too. Not all shoes are created equal. Even like, I, not a knock on Nike, but I, I, you take what, a pair of brand new shoes and put them next to each other. Both shoes are not equal every time, and so you're frequently yeah. putting on even brand new footwear that is pushing your body in one way or another out of balance. And yeah. so for me, going barefoot was an immediate change. I, one thing I will say is it takes an adjustment. So right. from an alignment standpoint, it can help right off the bat. But for folks that are used to wearing modern footwear, their feet will frequently get 
really sore. I made the mistake of like going out and running four miles barefoot uh, within like the first year that I started doing barefoot and I felt myself getting like a stress fracture in my foot. So be careful. You're not supposed to run on concrete barefoot. We did not evolve for that. And I even wouldn't go out and run on grass for a long period of time until you've been living primarily barefoot for a while. So anytime you're home, be barefoot. Obviously, if you're going to the office or or going anywhere else in the world, probably more appropriate to wear shoes. Uh, But there are some great options for barefoot shoes too. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'll... I think I'm going to get some, try, try them out. Um, but yeah, interesting. Um, and so you think a lot of your problems that you had then injuries, knees, ankles is, was caused by improper posture, which was exacerbated by footwear. Yeah. For, I think it was a combination of reasons. One of them was definitely the fact that I didn't dedicate enough of my exercise regimen to flexibility and mobility. It was constantly, it was cardio and it was strength training. So I was running all the time. I was going to the gym and lifting heavy. And then I would go, I was like playing soccer and hockey multiple times a week. So that was a, that was a big element to it. I was not adding enough stability training for my mobility to be able to like move quickly and balance properly. And I was Mm. not stretching enough. I was not working on flexibility, which really provides the room you know, like the margin of error for your body. Mm. If you're not flexible, the margin of error is tiny. So if you're like out of alignment for a second and you plant wrong, like you can easily blow out a knee or mess up one of your hips or back. I mean, you got people dealing with orthopedic injuries all over the place now. And I think that's a huge part of it. People don't move enough. Mm. So their body doesn't have the capabilities that they need to be doing those movements. The other element was absolutely, uh, from a nutrition and diet standpoint, I was in a state of very high inflammation. Um, I think part of it was alcohol. I was in a phase of my life where I was, you know, drinking a fair amount on the weekends, but I also was just not, I did not have my diet quite dialed in. It was a lot of more bread, like breads, uh, Mm. more processed foods. So there's a combination of reasons, but the barefoot definitely helped a lot. So you touched on alcohol. Um, and I know that we, uh, we've, we, we don't have, uh, You've been very generous with the time, but we're, we're, we're running up on, on an hour, but you touched on alcohol briefly. What's, so do you, do you drink now? Um, and how bad is it? Yeah. So this is, I I share a very similar belief, uh, to Peter Atia. I also, I did my time. I had a period of time where I was uh, drinking fairly heavily, fairly regularly, and my body sort of fell apart on me. And I think mm. for anybody that's doing that, unfortunately, it will happen sooner rather than later. Um, so there's really no, I would say safe dose. Safe's not the right word, but like there's no healthy dose of alcohol. Even people that are like, yeah, one glass of red wine a day, you're getting antioxidants. The amount that alcohol disrupts your sleep alone is reason not to drink it. Even a single glass of alcohol, and Andrew Huberman talks about this all the time uh, on his podcast, even a single glass of alcohol earlier in the day will disrupt your sleep. And so if you're disrupting the time in which your body is repairing and recovering, it's gonna impact you the next day. And so definitely for folks that are having like a glass of wine a day thinking it's not affecting them, it is affecting them, uh, unfortunately. So the short answer to your question is I do drink, I just am very picky with when I drink and what I drink. If I Mm. am hanging out with some of my closest friends and like we're going hiking or something and I want to have like a cold beer afterwards, of course, I'm going to live my life. Uh, You know, I'll go out to dinner with my wife. Well, I'll have a glass of wine or two, but I really am very selective with the quality of alcohol that I'm drinking and the quantity. I probably drink once a month, maybe twice a month, depending on what I have going on and it's never in excess. I never really get above three drinks at the most. And that's if I'm at like a family member's wedding. Right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm planning on going entirely sober next year, uh, just to see, see what it's like. I haven't, I, I've, 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 I sort of thought to myself, you know, the last time I had a whole year when I didn't drink, I would have been like, what, 14 or something? I mean, I, I, I don't even know, maybe even 13. But 
like my body hasn't had an entire year of being of, of full sobriety since I was a, a teenager. So I'm kind of thinking, well, I'll try it out, see how I see how I feel, you know, and then maybe I'll go back on. Yeah, you'll, you'll be surprised at where you notice it. For me, it's the mornings. I'm a morning person. I'm frequently up around 5am. I love getting up before the sunrise. It's like my alone time. I have, I, I can uh, do a bunch of reading, meditating, writing. Um, and when you drink, even if it's one drink, I'll wake up two hours later than I normally do yeah, because my yeah, body's yeah. trying to get that high quality sleep. Yeah, yeah. But if it's metabolizing alcohol during the night, it's not doing that. So that's where I noticed it most. But you'll be surprised where you notice it as far as energy levels, focus, um, mm. even like soreness. If I have a drink and I've worked out that day, I'm like 10 times more sore the next day because just because mm. of that little bit of uh, inflammation that it exacerbates. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, all right. Well, look. Um, we'll wrap up shortly. You've got a book. Um, tell me about the book. Uh, what, 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 where was the inspiration and where can people find it? Yeah. So the book I have on gum road right now, it's called the ultimate nutrition guide. And it was really a pet project for me to just summarize a lot of the key themes, the frameworks that I found in all of these books and podcasts that I listened to that helped me get to where I am now, where you know, at the time I lost about 50 pounds and then I put on another 15 to 20 pounds of, of muscle. And so I have sort of, I felt like I kind of found that sweet spot and there were, I just kept coming across very similar themes. A lot of which we talked about here, like prioritizing protein, eating real foods, prioritizing fermented foods. So I have the book on Gumroad right now. Um, I'm actually, uh, redoing my website. It's, uh, it, it is tentatively live right now. And, um, so I'm going to be having a course coming out that's focused on helping busy adults optimize their hormones. So depending on whether it's weight loss or muscle gain or just improving mood and motivation, all of that stuff is heavily dictated by our hormones. So I'm creating a course for people again, based on a lot of the stuff that I've just pulled from different books and podcasts, um, to help people do that. So I got the book on Gumroad right now. It'll be on my website. I also have a newsletter. So if folks are interested in just simple, actionable tips on living a healthier life, uh, my website's longevitylifestyle.me. And you can find the newsletter on there, the book. Uh, there's a wait list for the course that'll be launching January 15th. And yeah, a lot of exciting stuff that I'm working on, but my focus is really on just helping empower people to live healthier lives. Awesome. Well, look, I'll make sure to uh, link to all of those different bits that you've mentioned in the show notes. Um, but yeah, look, uh, Andrew, it's been great to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. Great conversation. I appreciate it. Nice one. All right. Take care. Complete check. Hands. Well, I'm running, baby. Complete.